Hello and welcome to the third episode of Designing with Climate in Mind, hosted by me, John Koo. We're in the midst of a climate emergency, a challenge we need to design our way out of. In this series, I'm sitting down with a range of experts who are all at the cutting edge of reimagining our buildings, cities and communities. Or, in this particular case, whose knowledge and storytelling has the power to provoke the changes we need to see right now. Our guest today is climate scientist Dr Ella Gilbert. Her research has seen her travel out to the Antarctic Peninsula to help study the impact of global warming as an atmospheric physicist. In this episode, we'll discuss her journey from being a climate activist to a climate scientist, as well as taking a close look at the science of climate change and the disconnect we sometimes see between the worlds of science, activism, business and the media. Ella, welcome to Designing with Climate in Mind. How's your week going? Yeah, it's all right so far. I've have, uh, had quite a few things to do, been quite busy, but it's always nice to be a bit busy. This is true, especially in this time of time of lockdown. But I guess a nice place for us to start would be you're a climate scientist. So tell us a little bit about your work and your research. Yeah, so I've been working at the British Antarctic Survey for the last four years or so. And my work there has been focusing on the sort of atmospheric causes of melting over ice shelves on the Antarctic Peninsula, which is this very warm part of the Antarctic. Well, relatively warm anyway. (laughs) Um, And it's trying to understand the the main causes of, of what's causing change there, essentially, and what that might mean for the present and the future. And your your focus is on on the weather. I mean, I was seeing on social media earlier, on that you, you take quite an interest in clouds. I love clouds. If I'm ever on Millionaire and the question's on clouds, I'm coming to you. Fantastic. Can't wait. In terms of, I think with the British Antarctic Survey, when I first came across them, it was because one of your colleagues brought uh, some some ice. So like a, a slice of ice from a kind of borehole so we could kind of see like the, how carbon had been captured. But yours is a little bit different. Yours is, yours is tell us more about atmospheric impact on climate change? Yeah, so the British Antarctic Survey does a huge amount of different research and the ice coring team is a really big part of the way we understand historical climate change. And what I do is much more present day stuff. So it's essentially looking at the weather and climate over longer time periods in the Antarctic. So we're we're interested in things like clouds, we're interested in things like temperature rise, wind speeds, humidity, how this is changing over the, the longer term. And to do that, I use a combination of methods. So I use both observations. So we, we use aircraft data where you fly around measuring clouds and the atmosphere. We use uh, station data. So we have lots of remote um data collection stations that are dotted around uh, the Antarctic and those record all sorts of information. We use things like weather balloons, which go up through the atmosphere. And the main tool that I actually use is the Met Office UK weather prediction model. So I use the same one that they use to forecast our weather and I use it in the Antarctic. So I'm using this kind of four, three or four dimensional model uh, to understand what's going on in 3D over time. And then I'm comparing it with all this observational data that we have that's usually either like sporadically collected in really intense campaigns or is kind of longer term, but only at a specific point. So if you combine all of that, you get a much better picture of what's actually going on. That sounds amazing. It sounds complex, but it sounds sounds amazing. I mean, as part of your your research, it's, it's taking you out towards what I'm going to refer to as the end of the world in, in the Antarctic. But So what was it like um, actually being there? What was it like to be doing research in a base on the Antarctic Peninsula? It's otherworldly, to be quite honest. I don't know if you've seen the Werner Herzog film where he goes to the end of the world in his words. Uh, <laughs> but it is, it's like another planet. It's like being on the moon. It's so divorced from everyday reality that it's like 
being transported outside of your everyday life. And I honestly, hand on heart, did not expect it to be quite so transformational. I think it's probably the best thing I've ever done. And to actually see firsthand that incredible environment, first of all, uh, one that I've been completely captivated by and fascinated by for so many years and the subject of pretty much all I do in my day job. Uh, it was, it was just insane to actually see it and experience it and then put all of the things that I've been working on into context because you can kind of abstractly think about climate change affecting Antarctic ice but until you see it firsthand it's it's less real and it must have been must be really nice to because you look at a lot of complex models you look at a lot of numbers you look at a lot of data but to see you know how that's actually manifesting itself to kind of feel to hear to smell you know that experience of being there in the antarctic would have been would have been incredible it yeah it certainly was i mean i would hands down in the blink of an eye go again <laughs> if anyone offered an opportunity i'd be there in a flash on the fun side i think you got up to a couple of interesting activities whilst you're out there i think i might have seen a snowboarding video Yeah, I mean, in Antarctica, I learned some new skills. I learned how to snowboard for the first time, which mostly involved me falling downhill repeatedly (laughs) with a snowboard attached to my feet. I also learned to drive. Admittedly, it was only a gator, so I don't know if you can really... That is epic. You learned to drive in the Antarctic. Yeah, and I also got to fly a plane. That was pretty oh, this cool. Is, this is, this is, right, if you've not wanted to be a climate scientist before, I think Ellen's giving the best advert for, for the career ever, ever made. I'm going to keep advertising. <laughs> for, I, I, there's going to be a number of people that listen to this podcast and consider a career change or start putting pressure on their kids. I think my, my, all of my friends and family have been living vicariously. But <laughs> it's much better if you do it yourself. So what was it, like, on that point, what, what was your kind of friends and family's reaction and what, what did they want to know? Or, you know, what was it like even communicating with them when you're in the Antarctic? I mean, we've just gone through a couple of months where communications become ever digital um, and virtual. But what was it like being that far, far away and then telling, being able to share that story? I guess speaking to people at home whilst you're there, it becomes much more precious because you have to go. There's only two phones on base, really, that are able to be used. You have to go and find a free booth. It's literally like the 90s. It's fantastic. And you have to go and call over your satellite link to wherever it is. And it, yeah, it becomes more kind of precious that time where you can hear the voices of your loved ones from such a long way away. Um, when I came back, everyone was, of course, super interested to see how it was. Um, the experience in general, you know, what do you eat? How, what's the day look like? Um, how is it working with people that you can't escape from? <laughs> All of those sorts of things, as well as the obvious, did you see any penguins? How cold was it? Which are probably the most common questions you get, particularly when children are involved. I can't resist that question. One, did you see any penguins? And then I kind of finally on this, um, what was that camaraderie or that kind of team spirit and community spirit that was, that was headed at the base out there? One, yes, did see some penguins. They are little adelies. They are very sassy and they wander around base all the time. Um, and the whole place is littered with seals, gigantic, stinky ones. Um, the camaraderie is amazing. I don't, I've also done sort of festival build crew stuff where you go and you camp for five weeks and you create something. It was sort of like that, where you have this team of people all doing different things, but working towards the same goal. And everyone has their different part to fulfill, but everyone comes together and has ultimately the same drive. And I think something about the Antarctic means that you get a very certain type of person that's really motivated, really outdoorsy, really adventurous, really fun. And that produces a really great community feel, I think. So the vibe generally on base is really wicked. I've met some incredible people while I was there. And yeah, I can't underestimate how incredible that is. The people that end up going down south are amazing. As, as a South Londoner, when people say going down south, I, I normally just mean, think about crossing the Thames. But um, 
in terms of the the Antarctic, that that sounds sounds great. I guess in some ways it's the closest you can get to to being like an astronaut. It's the closest you can get to being that far far removed. And what's really nice there is that that kind of positiveness. Because whenever you watch a film about a group of people going to space, something bad is normally going to happen. <laughs> yeah, no, it is. They, I think NASA does um, psychological tests using uh, Antarctic bases. I think probably the American ones where people are isolated during the middle of winter where it's minus 80. But they test to see how people cope in really small groups in those sorts of scenarios. I'm imagining one of those ones where they have an ink blob on a card and they say, what do you see? <laughs> As business and as a design community, we're increasingly aware that we're in the midst of a climate emergency. Greta Thunberg's message is always to follow the science. Ella, could you give us an update on where the planet is at? Yeah, sure. I mean, the general science of climate change is fairly simple. I'm sure you and all your listeners will be very familiar with the basics. So, Rising greenhouse gas concentrations, which keep rising, are pushing up temperatures, not just in the atmosphere, but also the oceans. Um, So we're seeing many more warm years. We're seeing the hottest, the hottest 10 years on record have all been since 2000, for example. And that warming is unevenly distributed across the world. So, for example, in the Arctic or the Antarctic, you're seeing much more warming than you would at the mid latitudes or at the tropics. Um, And all of this heating is causing more extreme events, things like heat waves. So in the south of the UK, the Met Office uh, notes that we get a heat wave every four years. And by 2070, they're expecting that to be four times per year. Um, So I saw a study published the other day that says the likelihood of 40 degree summer temperatures in the UK is rapidly accelerating. And that by 2050, London, for example, might have a climate more akin to Istanbul. And the temp- temperatures of 40 degrees are kind of expected once in a century in the UK at the moment. But if we keep going as we are without mitigating any sort of any of our emissions, then we're on track to see 40 degree temperatures every three and a half years or something like that. And those heat waves aren't just restricted to places like the UK. We're seeing them in the polar regions. Last year in Greenland, there was a huge heat wave that produced a huge amount of melting. And in Siberia, I mean, I'm sure people will have been uh, noticing that temperatures in Siberia have been persistently above 30 degrees uh, during summer 2020. And that's pretty unprecedented. We are in a time of unprecedented change, not just related to COVID, of course. Um, So heat waves aren't the only extreme events that we're seeing. There's an increased incidence of things like flooding, droughts, um, all sorts of different events that used to be, you know, once in a century are becoming more like once in a decade or even once a year. And all of these sorts of extreme events, things like flooding, heat waves in our polar regions, contributing to sea level rise, um, if we're getting much warmer temperatures in places like the Arctic and Antarctic, of course, you're melting lots of ice and that contributes to sea level rise, which affects everyone pretty much all over the world. And if we don't mitigate climate change, the UK is probably in for about, well, depending on when you, where you live in the UK, between 30 centimetres and one metre of sea level rise um, around the UK's coast. So this is all, of course, going to be important for people who are designing buildings. So you're going to have to be much more thermally resistant to extremes, not just warmer temperatures, but also colder ones. We're also going to see much more precipitation. So in winter, we're going to get much more rain, sad to say, but we're going to get drier summers as well. So you get both the flooding in the winter and also more heat waves and droughts in the summer. So you've got the worst of both worlds in a way. And it's also going to be more intense in the summer. You're getting much more convection. And in the winter, you get more frontal rain. So it's more to do with really intense storms passing through the UK, for example. So all of these things you're going to have to think about if you're designing buildings or producing uh, forecasts or ensuring agriculture, for example. And 
this is just the physical side of things, of course. So that doesn't even begin to touch on the sorts of impacts on ecosystems, on people, on their migration, on where people can live and how they make their livelihoods. No, that's true. The People don't tend to see things systemically. So the, the social impact that climate change is going to have, and that's not just kind of far away. That's, you know, within the UK, I think we're starting to see our, our first set of uh, climate refugees in terms of um, the urgency of the matter like when i'm listening to those those facts and those the kind of scientific predictions it's pretty terrifying but can you tell us a bit about how urgent it is that we we start listening to that science i mean ideally we would have started listening to the science when the science started being shared um i think it's of paramount importance and unfortunately because of lockdown and because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had a lot of policy put on pause. But that doesn't take away from the urgency of climate change. It's still happening and it's still happening very rapidly and it's still going to be affecting people all over the world. It still already is affecting people all over the world right now, including us in the UK, whether or not we directly experience it or not. So it's super urgent. Lots of people like to say that we've got 10 years left. Um, following uh, the publication of a report that said pretty much that a few years ago. Um, I think having an arbitrary number like that can be a bit of a distraction in a way because it means that if that 10 years is up and we haven't, in quotes, solved climate change, then people are potentially going to lose faith and be like, oh, well, we didn't do it, so we might as well just give up. But I think it's a spectrum. The more we mitigate, the quicker we mitigate, the less damaging and destructive the impacts are going to be. The more we can incorporate justice and climate justice into our response, um, the better it's going to be because climate change affects the poorest people within and between countries the hardest and the first because they're least likely to adapt, um, to be able to adapt. And it's much more directly impacting people who depend on natural resources for their livelihoods, whether that's, you know, fisheries or forestry or agriculture. And all of those things are much more uh, likely to be damaged by ongoing climate change, particularly in developing countries. And I think it's some of those stories are the ones that really need to be to be told in terms of seeing the effects on on society. I think sometimes there's a bit of a split between the science the sociology, the psychology, um, and there's a need to to find ways to to bring those together. Absolutely. On a, on a, I don't know that if this is a positive note, but during the lockdown and during this initial um, COVID nineteen phase, is what I'm going to call it, um, we actually did see a great pause in terms of the amount of carbon emissions that we were seeing because people were traveling less, people weren't weren't flying. Is that something that you? you saw and saw as a, a positive or saw as um, something that was temporary? I mean, what, how did that, what, what was your perspective on, on those reductions in greenhouse gas and carbon emissions during COVID-19? I mean, sure, on the face of it, that's really good because we're seeing far fewer emissions from air travel, for example, from private transport and from industry because nothing was happening. <laughs> but at the same time, it's very likely that the recovery from the pandemic is going to see much more use of private transport. People are going to be using their cars instead of using public transport. And that is going to be stepping us backwards. And I think actually it'll be more damaging because of the way that it will impact society. Think about the amount of single-use plastic, for example, that's being used now because we have these very stringent hygiene requirements now. And whilst I'm not going to say that that's a bad thing, we have to think about how we can incorporate a green and climate friendly recovery into our recovery from the coronavirus pandemic. So I'm in a way, I'm a bit pessimistic because it's also delaying a whole load of climate policy. For example, the COP26 negotiations, which were meant to happen in November, December this year, I've now been delayed, set back an entire year, which in a way is good because we've got more time to prepare for it and make it a really landmark uh, summit where we actually make some momentous, important decisions. But at the same time, it's just pushing back 
climate change from the agenda and it makes it seem like it's not happening and it's not important. But realistically, climate change is with us and it's going to be a much more far reaching and longer term problem that we've got to deal with. And it's just the elephant in the room at the moment. Ella, we met last year when you joined Interface and our, our customers for our Climate Dine With Me event, which brought architects together at the Garden Museum, which is a beautiful, beautiful venue, to learn and talk about climate change over a, a wonderful vegan meal by Suzanne James. What, how did you find that event as a, as a speaker and how did you find kind of connecting with that design community? Was it a community that you'd come across a lot before? I thought it was incredible I really loved it it's very different to the sort of thing that I've done before I mean I'm used to giving talks or lectures or possibly more kind of workshops and it being quite one way which is something you get quite used to being a scientist but I really really enjoyed the sort of uh, back and forth the learning and the sharing of knowledge and understanding between me as a scientist and then all of these incredible people working in the architecture and design worlds, because it's not really a group of people that I particularly um, interact with very frequently. And it was really amazing to hear different perspectives and fresh ideas. And to I thought it was really inspiring because people are so um, engaged and have so many ideas and are sort of brimming with energy to actually tackle the climate crisis, which you don't necessarily always encounter. So I was sort of expecting, because sometimes you get very jaded audiences or people who are just generally not so interested, which is fine. It's your, it's my job as a scientist to make you interested and engaged, but it was great to come to that event where people were already so full of energy and enthusiasm for the top, the topic. One of the key questions that came up over the dinner was a lot of people were asking as an individual what can and what should they be doing to kind of tackle the climate emergency i think there are two answers to this or rather it's the same answer but it's two sides of the same coin so if you want to take individual action that's fantastic. And I think lots of people already know lots of the basics. So one of the main things that you can do is to cut meat and dairy from your diet. So a vegan diet is much less energy and resource intensive than a one that relies on mass production of animal products, but also changing the way you travel. So for instance, reducing the amount you fly, if you can get somewhere via train or bus or boat even, then that's usually preferable in terms of your carbon emissions. I mean, the rise of video conferencing during the coronavirus pandemic has demonstrated that we really do not need to fly to conferences all the time, that we can have really meaningful conversations and presentations via the internet. And it's really fantastic. I've attended two conferences that were scheduled to be in real life and have now been on the internet and they've been really fantastic. So I think in a way that's a really positive note to have taken from uh, the coronavirus pandemic. But as a side note, the, the sorts of things that we can do as individuals, it's not just about recycling. It's not just about changing your light bulbs. It's not just about walking instead of driving. Those things are useful and important, but they're not going to get us over the finish line. What's really important is to actually directly campaign for meaningful change from those who are in a position to manifest it. So that's big government, big corporations, uh, institutions like banks who have this financial power that they wield, that they can use to invest in green solutions rather than fossil fuels, for example. So if you are campaigning, um, lobbying your MP, for instance, to pass motions in parliament to actually get policy tabled and passed that tackles climate change, that's really, really useful that you can do as an individual. Then there's things like actually engaging in activism, whether that means to you 
writing to your MP or going onto the streets and brandishing your placard or whatever it means to you, all of these tactics are really, really essential. So I think individual actions on in the sense of changes that you can make to your lifestyle are helpful. They're empowering because you feel like you're making a difference. That's really great. And everything, everyone should do whatever they can to actually tackle climate change. But on the other side, that shouldn't be used as a distraction because those who are in power are those that have been historically responsible for causing climate change and have the power to change that. So if institutions with lots of money or governments or the banks decide en masse to stop investing in climate damaging industries, then that's a huge deal because then we can transition into a, a green economy that actually improves the environment, not necessarily stops just stops damaging it. But if we can have a future that is much more sustainable in term, and, and just and equitable in terms of the environment and also social factors, then what are we losing? It's a win-win-win. I wonder if there's a shift occurring because... I think people want to understand their their sphere of influence when they think about what they can do. So recycling or um, thinking about reusing stuff around your home or switching your electricity provider seemed like a a level one or an entry level way of participating. But are people starting to realize now that that bigger impact that they they can have, like the power of a, a vote, the power of choosing who you purchase from the power of activism is that something that in recent years we're being more effective as a sustainability environmental movement on i think so because you see the success of movements like the climate strikes or extinction rebellion for example those sorts of movements have materialized out of nowhere and they've been really really impactful if you consider the fact that two years ago no one had heard of extinction rebellion and no one was talking even in the language of climate emergency and now how many councils and parts of local government have declared a climate emergency it's incredible whatever you think of their tactics they have got climate change onto the agenda and the climate strikes have been so important in rallying young people who are ultimately going to be living with a future climate and who are ultimately going to be the people that are fixing it and engaging with young people who are so enthusiastic and have so much energy and zeal for tackling the problem is one of the most incredible things that I've witnessed in the last few years. I mean, I've been involved in activism for probably 15 years and I've never felt that that momentum has been there in the same way as I do now. So I think it is changing and it's sort of picking up because it has to. If we don't demand that change, nothing is going to happen. If we can't keep doing the same things, if the same things don't change anything. I think the conversations are becoming much richer. I also see that in other movements like Black Lives Matter um, and in the Me Too movement where people are starting to feel freer to have conversations but also have feel freer to state their viewpoint and be more demanding in what they they call for and that that can only be a good thing yeah and those movements are not isolated they're not separate they have to be related because all of these struggles are the same all of these movements are ultimately aiming towards the same goal which is a better society a better future and a better environment for all of us You've been on a journey in your life from being a climate activist to being a climate scientist. Could you tell us a little bit about when your passion for protecting the planet started? Yeah, I mean, I often get asked this and I think I've always been really keen on the outdoors. I've always really enjoyed being out in the environment, I suppose. And I think when I learned about climate change, which I was probably about 13, I was so outraged, A, that no one had told me about this before, and B, that it was occurring full stop, that I went from really enjoying geography and the outdoors to being a full-blown climate nut job in the space of about two months. (laughs) And by the time I was 16, 17, I was always out on the school drive, you know, leafleting, uh, had well and truly 
earned the the sort of reputation of being that campaigny climate girl. Um, I used to go to lots of demos and protests dressed as a leopard for whatever reason. Um, complete face face pain, um, outfit, tail, and ears, all of it. Um, there's a picture of me in the Guardian from about 2009, I think, when I was probably 17 or so, wearing a leopard outfit. So I went from like really intensely into protest because I was really, really passionate about the subject and then gradually sort of diversified my tactics. Now I only have a leopard print haircut. Good to the theme. Yeah, yeah, I don't know where it came from, but it's definitely there. <laughs> so yeah, I suppose I moved into um, more direct action and things on specific issues. So I was always campaigning on the environment, on climate change, particularly fossil fuel infrastructure, uh, divestment campaigns, done a lot um, aviation campaigning, anti-aviation campaigning, and then also lots of social justice stuff as well. But on the environment front, it's mostly those topics. And then is it a path you feel that when you've met fellow scientists, a lot have followed or do you feel like it's something that's going to become more, more emergent? I don't really know because I wanted, I became a climate scientist because when I learned about climate change for the first time when I was, you know, 13 or whatever, I felt like I could do this activism and I really embraced that ball by the horns, if that's even a phrase. (laughs) Um, And I decided that, I mean, I've always been relatively academic and I felt like I could use my strengths to understand climate change better and it was something I was really interested in as well as passionate about and I always have wanted to know how things work I love understanding how machines work and I was fascinated by tractors and stuff when I was a kid so I really like knowing how the atmosphere works why that weather pattern is like that what do those clouds mean how is the climate changing those questions are hugely interesting to me and I thought that applying my sort of academic mind to that problem would be another way to contribute to solving the problem so I suppose I had these two strands happening in parallel where I was in the short term acting and being an activist to to improve climate or in some way and then also pursuing this goal of becoming a climate scientist to improve our understanding of climate change and I think most scientists that I speak to have always been really passionate um, or sometimes they just kind of arrived at climate science a bit later because they did physics or biology or some something like that and then discovered a interest in climate and often these people are quite outdoorsy and like the environment and like the world that we live on a lot and not necessarily activists. Although I think more scientists are embracing their role as advocates and getting involved in activism, which is a change I welcome immensely. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. I think, cause I think it, it shouldn't be rare that people move between what I would call different tribes. So I, I see kind of a science tribe, a business sustainability tribe, an activist tribe. There's probably many, many others, but not many people kind of have moved or sit within two or have a good view at least of around two of you. I, I think that's pretty, pretty unique. And with those tribes, I, I think there's sometimes a bit of a disconnect between science, business and the activist communities i just wanted to ask you whether you you felt the same or what things you saw were changing or your perspective on on how those tribes interact yeah i think it's quite a shame that we are encouraged to sort of act in our silos and only associate or kind of relate to one of our hats so i mean i'm in this unique position where i'm sitting between the scientific world, the activist world, and to an extent, the media world, which are all very different and have different customs and norms and ways of communicating. And I don't necessarily think that they these should be so isolated. I hope that the Venn diagram starts to compress a little and all of these groups can interact more and learn from each other because 
there is so much to be gained from sharing knowledge and experience between and across sectors. So there is this disconnect, but I think it is connecting a little bit more over time and people are starting to appreciate that those linkages can be really important. And as we are discovering the immensity of the problem, people are realizing that they need to work together with others, whether that's scientists becoming activists or scientists starting to talk to people in the media or the media talking to activists and starting to report on that or business taking innovations from science or trying, uh, you know, listening to public pressure and changing the way that they do business. All of those things are indicative of things starting to change a little bit. And the idea that local governments and governments in general have declared climate emergencies is testament to the fact that activism and policymaking or governance is actually coming closer together, whereas previously it was much more at loggerheads to an extent and climate activists were often extraordinarily frustrated with the the state of inaction. I think that is starting to change a little bit too slowly but it is starting to have an effect. I, I totally agree. And the media is a really interesting one to add. I, I had forgotten that when I was thinking about it. I mean, I was, I was listening to an, uh, an interview with one of the Guardian journalists, Damien Carrington, the other day, and he was saying, you know, d- instead of being impartial, he felt that the media had historically been very one-sided. He kind of said, you know, that shift that they had last year where they don't talk about people being a climate skeptic, they're more willing to say climate denier was a, a big thing, like a big thing to move things forward. But I wondered, do the different tribes have certain traits in your opinion? Isn't it? And I say that because sometimes <laughs> if we can understand those different traits, we can understand how to bridge those communities together. Yeah. I mean, that, I think that impartiality thing is really important. And the Guardian has been at the forefront of changing their language. So they use climate crisis or climate emergency now, um, which I think has been a, a shift and that is important. But that impartiality thing is a problem in science as well, because scientists tend to not speak out about things that they care about in a professional capacity because there's this idea that scientists have to remain objective, have to remain impartial. But more and more, I think scientists are, climate scientists anyway, are becoming aware of the fact that oh, we've got all of this information. Knowing what we know, how could we not act on it? How could we not suggest action? How could we not implement what our knowledge tells us is happening and actually try and change the trajectory And with the media always trying to be balanced, that ends up miscommunicating the level of consensus on climate change. And of course, that is changing. So it is a really important shift that's that's happening. And it is going to be even more vital as we get further along the line. Yeah, and I think for the the audience here, if we have, which is the design community and businesses, I guess one thing we always kind of suggest to people is go and seek those perspectives that are not your usual suspects. So, I mean, one of the reasons we wanted to invite you on here is to give, you know, a science perspective that perhaps a lot of people don't get to, to hear. Um, equally, the activist pers- perspective, a, a corporate PR department will always be shy people away um, from, from activism, but they really shouldn't be doing that. They should be getting, people should be understanding what activists are saying about their industry, they should be getting involved. I think the school strikes, um, as we discussed, often see a lot of people helping their kids um, make their signs and protesting together, which is a lovely thing, lovely thing to see. So I think it's a, yeah, we're in interesting times. Hello, if our audience wants you to find out more and understand more around climate change, what are the resources or who would you suggest they follow? So I guess it depends on what sort of level you want to pitch at. I mean, if you're really fascinated by the science, the IPCC, so the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, produces these mammoth 
reports every seven years or so. There's a new one coming soon, and they usually have a summary for policymakers and a technical summary, which have some incredible graphics and basically is the consensus, the Bible of the consensus on climate change at the time that they're released. Um, if you want more kind of uh, of an overview and something that's a little bit more accessible, there's some really great uh, websites, things like Real Climate is quite good. Um, a really fantastic resource in the UK is Carbon Brief, which has some really fantastic um, current news topic stuff. They do explainers. So for example, what's a climate model? Um, they have guest posts, all of that sort of thing. I would really recommend that. If you're interested in the sort of polar side of things, um, there's a great uh, website run by someone in Wales, a colleague called Antarctic Glaciers. And that's a really incredible resource for understanding changes and the general kind of concepts behind ice and glaciers and ice shelves and ice sheets and all of this sort of thing. Um, if you have Twitter, you can follow um, some scientists. There's some really um, prolific people that uh, post some really great stuff. So Catherine Hayhoe, who's a Canadian climate scientist, she's fantastic on Twitter. Um, Zach Labe, who I think is a PhD student in the US, produces some really fantastic, really easy to understand graphics that are posted on Twitter and get used in all sorts of articles all over the shop. Um, and then finally, I would not miss an opportunity to plug my own Twitter, which is Dr. Gilbs. And I also have an Instagram and a YouTube where I do lots of explainer videos about all sorts of stuff like climate change and Antarctic stuff. Either working or just having a passion around climate change, it's pretty taxing. It can be pretty tiring. And I think that's probably the same for a lot of people listening to this podcast. How have you found a way to find balance um, when working on these issues? Yeah, I think it's important because you have a tendency to get burnt out, particularly when you're working on something like climate change, which can be really soul destroying in a way to see the the lack of change or the limited impact that your specific individual actions are having, or just considering the terrifying and devastating impacts that climate change can have. So if you're con continually working in that field, it can be quite exhausting and no matter what you do it always feels like there's so much more to be done but I think it's important to take a step back and remember that anything that you do no matter how big or small is really fantastic and it's going to be a collective effort so everyone in everybody taking whatever action action they can is going to be vital to actually tackle the problem Personally, I enjoy having 12 plates spinning at once, but I am also a competitive boxer, which probably is my main outlet for stress and anxiety. <laughs> so, you know, had a bad day at work, been thinking too much about Arctic sea ice loss. Well, go and punch a punch bag or one of your teammates and it's it's all fine after that. Not that I would recommend this for everybody. I mean... Boxing is amazing, but I know that it's not for everyone. Um, but for, personally, I find that lots of people who work in climate or science or something that intense often have a physical outlet. So whether that's ultramarathon running or triathlons or cycling, whatever it is, people often have an outlet like that. Um, I know lots of colleagues who also do lots of crafts, so building and making things and lots of really incredible bakers actually we have a competition at the british antarctic survey when they do a student um conference we have to bake your phd and there are some absolutely phenomenal entries every single time i mean my office mate made a cake that was himalayan valleys and temperature and wind gradients going down this and the actual physical science and climate of a Himalayan valley in a cake. And there've been other ones with like multiple layers of rainbow and ocean 
little ecosystems and ocean biogeochemistry. They're absolutely phenomenal. I mean, it's very difficult to decide who wins every year. So maybe that's a thing as well, baking. I think that's remarkable. And I think if anyone is listening from Channel 4, a Bake Off Week special around climate change cakes could be a winner. It, it could really be a way to take a message out there. One of those cakes I mentioned did make it on to the Bake Off Another Slice website. That is epic. It was pretty epic. I was. It tasted good as well. So you know. <laughs> and, and also, to be to be fair, I, I know she's not involved anymore, but I think Mary Berry would appreciate that too. Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. Who can't um, appreciate a good cake? And I, I would definitely agree that I hadn't thought about it, but if I think about the sustainability environment world in business, again, a lot of cyclists, a lot of ultra runners. A good amount of bakers often feeding the ultra runners and the cyclists. It, that need to find <laughs> an outlet is is very true. But what, in in terms of an outlet, as well as kind of releasing energy, I, I wonder if there's and, and something that I find myself in, I looking for an activity that allows you to clear your mind. Oh, totally! You need something that's so different. For me, boxing is meditation because you absolutely cannot think about anything else once you're in the ring. It's so intense. You're thinking about someone punching you in the face rather than the woes of the day. You absolutely can't think about anything else. I always found the same with swimming as well or cycling long distance. Even though you might be kind of thinking about stuff generally, you are focused on the task at hand and breathing and getting in the zone. And it just, it takes you away from all of that stuff that you can spend so much time thinking about if you're trapped in your head almost and those sorts of activities which you know whether that's you know putting on the radio or a podcast and cooking or drawing or going for a run whatever it is it just has to be different and different space where you can separate whatever happened when you're doing your activism or your work or your climate lobbying whatever it is and then you can separate that and do something that's very different i remember or i heard a rumor that you once gave a, a climate change talk to your boxing gym <laughs> the rumors are true yeah i absolutely adore the community of my boxing gym and generally the boxing community in general so on the london circuit where i where I frequent, uh, there are incredible people. And again, it's this particular type of person that's really into intense sports. And I think it's similar to the sort of people that are into Antarctic science or whatever. They're very driven and motivated, and that makes for fascinating conversations. And they are from very different walks of life, but they all share this same drive and passion and interest. And no matter where, their, what their background and where they're coming at it from, they all can appreciate this and would take interest in whatever topic you're presenting. So yeah, I gave a talk in the boxing gym using boxing based metaphors to explain. You're going to have to share some of these. Yes. <laughs> I realized when I said that I was going to. So in the West Antarctic, for example, um, the ice shelves and the glaciers there are predominantly being melted from below by warming ocean temperatures rather than from atmospheric change. So I use the analogy of it's like an uppercut underneath the ice shelf, like warming it from below and melting it. And then there's a, a hot, dry wind uh, called fern, which I'm butchering because it's German pronunciation, um, which is like it's caused it's a wind caused by air flowing over mountains so for that one i use the um idea of an overhand rear hand so you've got a, a big backhand coming straight over the mountains and punching those ice shells on the other side right in the surface so those were my two go-to analogies um it went down pretty well it mostly involved me um being very self-deprecating and pictures of my teammates with various states of shock on their faces um it was highly entertaining 10 out of 10 would recommend and you definitely do it again i would love to do it again do talk, all the boxing gyms <laughs> 
if you're listening, Costello and Bunts, sign her up. <laughs> but um, what I, what I tell you, I think what, what interested me most about that was um, just the the ability to to change the language, to find a way to to communicate with wide groups and involve them in the conversation. Because one of my big fears is that some people do feel excluded from the conversation. And I think giving a talk like that and just finding kind of quirky new ways um, to to connect is a really powerful thing. I think something within the science commun- communications community, it's something we're seeing more of, but something we also need to see lots more examples of. It's so important to tailor your message to your audience because there's no point you'll just be talking across purposes. If if I'm giving a talk to children and I'm using language that they don't understand or examples that are completely divorced from their lives, they're going to turn off. And in the same way, you have to make things relevant to people's interests because that's how you capture their imagination and inspire change. And that's how you communicate your message. So if I'm talking to designers, I'm going to use a very different style of language to if I'm talking to the general public or boxers or children or David Attenborough, for instance. So it's really one of the most important skills I have ever learned to be able to highlight something that someone is likely to be interested in and where they're coming from. And I think that requires a degree of empathy and understanding of your audience. So you can't necessarily, you have to think about it. You can't go in cold always. You have to be uh, mindful of the perspectives that other people have. Ella, thank you so much for your time. It's been a fascinating journey, learning about your own journey, but also being able to look at those different tribes and different ways that we need to communicate. And I think you've given our design and business audience plenty of tips and places to go to find out more. So thank you so much for your time. Wow. From research in the Antarctic to Ella's journey from climate activist to climate scientist, I think you'll agree That was both fascinating and inspiring. Join us on the next episode of Designing with Climate in Mind, where I'll be talking to the fantastic Claire Potter, who runs a successful circular economy design studio down in Brighton. We'll be talking about demystifying the circular economy, training the next generation of sustainable designers, and the role of creativity in eco-design. If you're enjoying the show, please do let us know by leaving a comment on our blog page or by giving us a rating where you can. Until then, goodbye and thanks for listening. This podcast is powered by Interface. And if you'd like to learn more about us and our flaws, you can check us out on Instagram at Interface. Thanks too to our producer Tangerine for helping create the series.